Hey everyone, Joel here. Happy Friday. Are you ready for the weekend? I know I am. This is part two of my conversation with journalist Karen K. Ho. In part one, we chatted about some of the big stories in her career, viral moments, and how she's navigated everything so far. Go check that out if you haven't already, and then come back to this one. In part two, we talk about why she started her doom scrolling bot, her complicated relationship with Twitter, plus she gives me the play-by-play of the time she stood up to Bob Woodward. Here's part two of my conversation with Karen Ho. But I think we should talk about Twitter because you, as I said in the top, you're just one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter, and I mean that genuinely. I'd say that even if you weren't sitting in front of me. You, from where I sit, share so much of yourself you share so much about what you're learning sort of in real time. How do you think about your relationship with Twitter, both now and I guess throughout the years? Yeah, let's start there. I have a really complicated relationship with Twitter because I think it is, in some ways, it is like a bar. Like we know that bars are dangerous places for women, right? Like we know that they mm. get drugged frequently, but it's also like an, and you know that people with drinking issues can't go to bars and the, 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 often they are good bars, expensive bars, they're elitist ones, and they're also ones that have hygiene issues. Like, it's a great metaphor. And the thing that, Hmm. but there are also people who manage to create communities in bars, despite all of the things that I've mentioned. And the Hmm. thing that is really interesting to me is that Twitter is, for better or for worse, like, it is the bar that helped like significantly helped me establish like a an American media career. The way that I've been using it has basically my entire adult professional life. Like I started in undergrad, like I think in 2009 or 2010, when having a thousand followers was a big deal, when news outlets were starting to be like, here are the tweets about the latest municipal or like provincial yeah. election. And I remember telling people that I had started a Twitter account and they were like, what is that? And I remember feeling like it was also, like I said, a radically confusing place for me to observe American media Twitter or even especially like New York media Twitter and be like in Toronto or be in Yellowknife in the subarctic. And then Mm. people tell me that I tweeted like I was in New York or already in the US. Like I, I feel like Twitter is like I was peering into a window observing a dinner party and it allowed me to find out that I actually had a seat at that dinner table and people at the dinner table already knew who I was and they were Hmm. had been reading my work for a long time and I could build those friendships it was also a really good way for me to stay in touch with people like when I would meet them at journalism conferences or events and then also get on the radar of people who I literally looked up to and read that I couldn't even believe knew who I was. Um, Like like I said, like back in 2014 or 2015. And then when I moved to New York for grad school, 30 or 40 people were like, we are so excited. So I had a friend group before I got to the city. And like that was very radical to me. So it helped me establish my career. I will say that it is an unhealthy source of dopamine, like the way that it is for some people with Instagram or Facebook or YouTube. And only 
yeah, I would say especially in the last six months have I really figured that out. But the thing that I thought was interesting was I have written about like my complicated relationship with Twitter. I have been interviewed about it extensively, but I have yeah. also understood that it transformed my career, right? Like yeah. sometimes if I was just struggling to figure out if I had a pitch, I would just tweet something and it would go super viral. And then yeah. I would just be like, here, here's the proof from my editor. I should probably <laughs> write this. Like 25,000 people have liked it. And then they're like, oh yeah, you need to make a post of it on that right away. You know what I mean? And then yeah. the other thing is, like I said, like I still feel like a nobody sometimes, but I have the following of someone at a major media publication. And at one point I was going viral like more than once a month, right? And I'm talking at least five to 10,000 likes. Like sometimes I was... There have been a couple times I was the most popular tweet of the day, like period, like more than 120,000 likes. Yeah, wild. Yeah. And like I said, I was always confused by that because I wasn't a comedian. Like I didn't work at a major media publication. I have a weird resume. But people were just like, this person is funny or they've said something really insightful. And then all these people would follow me. And then I channeled that rather than selling novelty mugs or other merchandise i made it into i made it into a free service to help people clearly the things that you say resonate with people you not only found but also i think built a community of people who want to learn from you and hear about you i'm tempted to talk about elon musk a little bit but i really don't want to i think plenty of other people can i like but i guess the thing that i'll ask is i am curious in this moment of chaos on twitter sorry in this particular moment of chaos, because I suppose you could say there are many moments of chaos on Twitter. How do you think about it going forward as well as are there other platforms, whether they pale in comparison or not to Twitter, that have been net positive for your career? Tools that have outperformed the ways that you ever thought possible, how you do your job, how you move and navigate through your career. Does that make sense? Yeah. I use the Journalist of Color Slack a lot. I Wow, I realized I've been on it like six or seven years, especially when I was a media reporter. And it gave me a sense of community. Like the Yale sociologist Elijah Anderson has this really good essay that he turned into a book about the white space and the clearest demonstration of like white spaces or enforcement of white spaces is like when those two black men, the police were called on them when they were like in a Starbucks and they hadn't yet ordered. Or when Chris Cooper, that woman, threatened to call the cops on him in Central Park. Or even, I would say, the mood of affinity conferences, right? It's just like you can see people relax differently. And so the Journalist of Color Slack was a way for me to connect to other journalists of color and just talk about some of the challenges that we're going through and also just discuss fun things like pop culture and food and all these other things. And I use that as an alternative to tweeting especially when i'm like locked out of twitter then the other thing is the only reason why i'm still on facebook is like local buy nothing groups like in terms of like Mm. community interaction with people yeah and now that i own a dog like other dog owners and dog people on the subway and stuff like that i think as journalists we forget how much of our interaction is with strangers and like Mm. trying to have them in good faith and openness to people you wouldn't otherwise meet. But with the Elon Musk thing, I think that's really interesting because like I said, like I used to be confused why I was considered like a media critic because <laughs> I wasn't in that mm. position like as my full-time job. But my observations of, and media criticism on Twitter 
ironically, have made me... I've said things that have been insightful and proven to be true. Yeah. Like, I, I told Delia Kai at Vanity Fair what I thought, and everything I said about Elon Musk and his obsession with shitposting has borne true. And then also, I remember, I think just from the bot that you mentioned in my intro, like, really observing... <laughs> Like a, uh, like a service that people need, which was just like someone who wasn't intent on monetizing empathy feel mm. like they were looking out for them and being yeah. like, hey, are you slouching? Have you had some water? Are you sure you want to be doing this right now instead of going to sleep early? And it was radical, like in our capitalistic society that I wasn't immediately like trying to sell merchandise off of that platform. Totally, yeah. And audience, you know what I mean? People yeah. were really confused. Like 120,000 plus pop followers, maybe 127, I checked it in the past couple and, of days. And, Crazy and like, audience. And like real celebrity, like, Monica Lewinsky and Patton Oswalt and the operations manager of 76ers and Maggie Haberman or I think it yeah. was like Chase Buttigieg and like yeah. very confusing like I, I was like these people <laughs> like like I, that I'm that anything I made was on their radar is and the fact that I like I said I'm not immediately trying to sell something to them yeah. is also yeah. pretty like I said so that is that I haven't sold that audience to be like hey you're doom scrolling maybe you should consider better help like something like that yeah, yeah. it must be tempting though so speaking of doom scrolling why'd you start it how did that come about and then yeah what was the rough contours of that journey and i don't know as far as career advice goes should we all be starting bot services i don't know i don't know that we can turn that into advice but yeah tell me a little bit about it so it, it started off by I had been a freelancer and then I got a full-time job with Quartz and I realized that I could not stay up late reading news updates from China, Japan, and South Korea about COVID-19 hmm. late into the night anymore. And so I was me initially talking out loud to myself between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. Eastern saying, hey, are you doom scrolling? Like, maybe you should go to bed. And in the past, when I had tweeted out loud to myself about, hey, have you had lunch? Are you okay right now? People didn't realize that's what I was doing. Mm. And within a week, I think I had two or three... People didn't even interview me, that they just wrote it up. And I, like I said, I didn't invent the word. I just definitely popularized it. I think I saw Anne Helen Peterson tweet it. And I was like, oh, that's what I've been doing. I need to I'm gonna sure. do that. But then I started doing it every night. And it became a real thing. Like, yeah. to the point where like Ed Young was like... I was so proud of myself that I went to bed before I saw your reminder. And I would be like out with friends and I'd be like, oh, I have to send the reminder. Or like, yeah. like if my boyfriend was coming to stay over and I was like, before going to bed, I was like, oh, I haven't sent it. I have to send it out. <laughs> and my friends started noticing that I was starting to, it was starting to become a real chore. And they were like, you should do a bot. Yeah. And Johnny Sun, the writer and author, yeah. and he had done this reminder bot and he was like here's my code just you can use it as a template and i taught myself basic like i knew how to do commands through excel already like i knew that logic that you needed to do and so it wasn't hard for me to figure out tracery and json equivalents and then i mm. wrote it in an afternoon i just copied and pasted like a bunch of my old tweets yeah and then i started it up and then I noticed these. So then I could 
avoid the complaints over and over again of people being like, I'm not in the Eastern time zone. I just started work. Why are you telling me to go to bed or all this other stuff? And I was yeah. just like, I'm doing this for free. Leave me alone. I love that people were complaining about. <laughs> people love to complain, even for free things. Yeah, and true. so the thing that I thought was funny was I made the bot. And so not everyone wants to read my goofy jokes or see pictures of Max or my news articles about sustainability or economics or about art and i was like here if you just want a reminder here's a a bot that will just do it out and you can't complain because it's free and then but the thing that was interesting about the doom scrolling reminders is i have done i think 60 or 65 interviews like it depends on how i count it about the doom scrolling reminders because mental health became a huge issue during the pandemic and news consumption became a really huge problem during the pandemic and it became like a meme. Big time. So, and people would flag me. They're like, I think they're talking about you, especially during the 2020 national election season. So then there was Back. the election debates, and then it was the election itself. And then it was January 6th and the insurrection. And then, so they just never stopped being things for people to doom scroll about, right? And then it was also yeah. the George Floyd's protest, and it was also climate change. And like people would put it in headlines. They were like, People are doom scrolling the flooding in New York or a hurricane or they're talking about like I got interviewed by Vox, I think, two days before the election. And they're like, here's what. And people would say, if you need something to help you stop doom scrolling the results of the election, go follow Karen. That's wild. And it is a service. So I thank you on behalf of Twitter and your 127,000 followers for that service. Um, I'm curious Speaking of doom scrolling, I've heard you talk eloquently or tweet eloquently probably about burnout, which I think is pretty closely related. I get the picture that you've dealt with that or at least thought about it in your career. It's something I've dealt with definitely. And with social media specifically, I used to run social at Thomson Reuters, speaking of Canadian companies, and I got so burned out because literally my job was social media. So I was 100% in it full time. But how have you dealt in your career with burnout and what tips do you have? So there's two phrases that I saw by other reporters. One was Linda Holmes at NPR's mm. Pop Culture Happy Hour. And the other one is by Ed Young, like of The Atlantic. Pulitzer Prize winner Ed Young, genius. And the thing that I realized with exposure to social media is it often feels like either you're like a frog being cooked in water that's that hasn't yet boiled yet. And by the time it boils, you don't know what has happened. And then with Ed, he described it as the reason why he needed to go on a sabbatical was he had stared at the sun for too long. And I mm. said, that is it. Like, I'm going to hold on to, like, I'm going to print them out and stick them in my head. And just that was the thing. And also it was heavy exposure, if not to the minutia of everything bad in the world, didn't give me the tools to figure out a path forward. It just made me feel like... I was being sprayed with a fire hose of depression-inducing details. And also with social media, like, there are very random things that I didn't need to know. Like, I didn't need to know the minutia of, like, clearly poorly maintained Russian military vehicles invading Ukraine. Like, I, I needed to know, like, the state of what was going on in Ukraine, but I didn't need to know... Yeah. Like how military experts were like, you can see how old these tires are, like based on these photos. And I was like, I don't need to know this. This is going viral. But so those yeah. two things, 
like I'm I've been tapping out on my phone to make it less intimidating like the way that I dealt with burnout but one of those things was those fixating on those two things was like what am I doing what did I do before that would make me feel like I was being that frog cooked Mm. in that pot of water and what were the things that were making me feel like I was staring at the sun for too long and so fundamentally it meant re- Analyzing, I have been suggested for my powerist with Twitter if I would consider being a social media manager. And I said, absolutely not, because I had seen friends who had become social media managers just also go through cycles of burnout, the on-call yeah. cycle, the breaking news cycle. It meant every mass shooting always being on alert. Then to your point, I'd seen people also flee the news industry as a result of the burnout that they experienced during the yeah. pandemic just from the onslaught of bad news updates. And so I think when it came to Twitter and burnout, it was also just about the like fundamentally reminding myself that the algorithm was designed not for users' interest, but in yeah. maximizing attention and engagement. So it's like, it's designed to make people feel angry or annoyed or frustrated repeatedly because that drives engagement and advertising and time spent in the app. And so once I reminded myself of that, then I started walking away from it more and spending time off it more. Because I think it was like, unless I had something really important to say, right? Like for example, not even doom scrolling, right? Like hate reading is a big thing that we talk about in our industry and what drives traffic, what drives engagement, blah, blah, blah. Like I know social media managers at those sections. The problem is, so I very pointedly will say, so here's an example, like, what was it? John McWhorter wrote this essay about how the chancellor of Purdue University, he explicitly said something racist, but he wasn't deserving of cancellation and losing his job as a result of saying something at a commencement ceremony, basically explicitly made Asians feel permanently other. And I said, (laughs) this was published at an institution that published a pay report this year showing that if you were Asian, you were 35% less likely than a white staffer to receive the highest pay performance rating. Hmm. Which impacted your ability to get promoted, your ability to get a bonus, uh, probably your ability to be submitted for awards unless you self-nominated, other professional opportunities. And this is just for the Asians. If you were black, it was even worse. I think it was like 50%. And then I pointed out again that this was not the first instance this week where a white male staffer at the New York Times had said something infuriating. And I said, it's worth noting that 90% of the people who got the highest performance rating at the New York Times were white. And the year that this study came out, like in terms of the analysis that showed that no black people were deserving of the highest performance rating the next year one of their staffers won a Pulitzer Prize and so to your earlier point regarding like imposter syndrome right like I was like here's the data yeah here's the anecdote oh like we can't do it and I was like and I knew the people who compiled the data one of whom had won a Pulitzer and the other person who was like the chief economics reporter Mm. and and they were also both white and part of the union and so like then I'm able to go back in regards to your point about imposter syndrome, that something like that at the 
preeminent institution is completely out of my control. It's not like something that if I worked harder, I could overcome. Yeah. And then yeah. to your point about burnout, there is a limit to encouraging people to work long hours, nights and weekends, postpone time with family and friends or life goals for the sake of your professional career. If data is continuing to show that rewards for that kind of effort are limited to a certain group of people. Yeah. And so that is very helpful for me in terms of burnout. So the other thing career-wise, I was like, I prioritize trying to get good sleep, like diet, right? Like those are things within my yeah. control, learning things, yeah. like being a good peer, right? I think when we talk about office culture and interacting like this digitally and from conferences or in-person office, like non-transactional exchanges of dopamine is like deeply underrated because that's what people are people when people complain about oh i don't like small talk i don't like like i was like you don't have to go to drinks after work yeah it, it is not a huge lift for you to be like hey you're a dog owner here's this funny thing i saw on tiktok or instagram about dogs that just shows that you care about the other person and then so when you go to them for something work-related you have yeah. that pre-existing relationship so true but i think to your question regarding burnout it's just about the premise of i would say personal and mental health sacrifices that people especially in the news industry were willing to make for a long time that often mm. repeatedly led to burnout the data is showing that the promise is just not there, right? So we have seen in recently in our yeah. industry, it doesn't matter if you are successful and successful in terms of page views, in terms of doing really good reporting, like you can be laid off. Like it doesn't matter, what was it? Like the Gizmodo reporter, Paleo Future, whose real name like escapes me right now, but that's his username. He expressed regret that he didn't take more vacation time because he was still laid off like yeah all of protocol was laid off incredibly yeah. qualified smart brilliant people like it didn't matter and then and then there's also i i saw repeatedly that there were not allowances given for things like productivity or performance with all the pandemic stuff going on right like i there's still something to be written about the silent burden that a lot of like black reporters faced around George Floyd and the police shootings or Asian reporters with all the hate crimes. And you are yeah. still like, like you have that mental load and then you're still expected to like be laser focused on filing on time and doing all this stuff and being accurate and getting the right sources and all that stuff. And then you have normal life things. Like I knew people who were going through divorce or had cancer yeah. and where their kids were getting sick. And so when we talk about burnout and the conditions that lead to it, and like I said, I'm not a mental health professional. This is just from observing what people respond to yeah. in the bot and the reminders and then the economic and research data. And so I think that was really helpful because then you're like on top of that, not even layoffs, but the rewards were different, right? Like you could see yeah. that companies were saying, oh, we're not contributing as much to your 401k match or your health benefits, or we're not going to give pay raises this year, or we're not going to, the salary isn't <laughs> adjusted for inflation, or you should just be grateful that you have a job. 
like those kinds of, we're not gonna what was it there are still news organizations that have less offer less than three months of parental leave if they're based in yeah. the united states whereas with thomson reuters like in canada it's a minimum of a year to a year and a half yeah much better yeah it i can't believe it you said something that um layoffs i just i want to double click if i can use that phrase on that for a minute that is one thing that being a part of big corporates for 11 years now that's one thing that as soon as i learned that 99.9 percent in my mind anyway of layoff decisions have nothing to do with your performance i feel like that really helped me move through the world and navigate differently because I, had, I would have so many friends, depending on the year or whatever, that would be like, why me? Worked my butt off. I did so many things. And you're like, you just have to get past the mindset that you're in like a, like no matter what industry you're in, right? There's just not, I think, the stability that you would expect maybe our parents' generations or other generations had, even in big corporates. And you just have to get over the fact, that's a blunt way to put it, but it's not about you. Don't take it personally. That's been something that has taken me many rounds of layoffs to learn, but I definitely feel it now. And then on top of that, like working in the news organizations that we have, it's like you watch people see, we talk about this more in streaming, but it has happened in the news industry repeatedly that the work that you worked really hard to produce doesn't even exist online anymore unless you have a PDF of yourself. Yeah, just literally wiped away. Okay, I think we have to talk about Bob Woodward. Something that we talked about earlier in the interview is speaking truth to power. I wonder, could you, for anyone who's not as addicted to Twitter as I am, could you talk a little bit about, I think it was September 2020 maybe, you had a particular interaction with Bob Woodward. Will you just recap a little bit about it? And then I guess my question is, how did you do that? Okay, so the Coles Notes... Although I found out that's a Canadian term. So it's like the Cliff Notes is the American equivalent. Mm. The Cliff Notes yeah. version of it is, I think it was IRE had a virtual conference, like you said, in the fall of 2020. I think it was October. And I was asked to do a presentation, business reporting tips for non-business reporters, especially for local ones. So I did a presentation. Mm. And then right after that, Bob Woodward of the Washington Post and all the President's Men fame was doing an Ask Me Anything. And... Let me just add editor's note, like for anybody who doesn't know about Woodward is one of the most, can we say, respected, lauded journalists, specifically in that industry, but also even in non-journalism industry, just like a name that people know and revere. Anyway, back to you. Yes. Also, it was a funny side note is it took me several months for me to realize when I was in graduate school, the director of my program was his oldest daughter. Tally Woodward. Oh. Make the connection. Sure. I was like, Woodward, that can't be the same one. And I was like, (laughs) no. And I was like, America. Okay. Great journalist in her own right. But, and, and what had happened was so Bob Woodward had just released a book about extensively interviewing Trump and had revealed in the press tour for the book that the president knew about the severity of. COVID-19 and how infectious it could be much earlier than he let the public know. I think in February or March. Yeah. And he defended keeping that, like Woodward defended keeping that information in his book because he thought that the most important thing was to publish the book before the November 2020 election. Yeah. Whereas I and many other reporters, including my friend Shira Stein, 
were incredibly upset and said, if in the interest of in the public, like our work as journalists, yeah. if you had released this information, especially because you had it on tape and let the public know that even the president thought that COVID-19 was incredibly serious as early as March or April, yeah, you could have saved a lot of lives. And so what happened was, I think it was Omar Rashid, I have to check this, but Omar Rashid, Shira Stein, and then finally myself, we all signed up to ask Bob Woodward questions in the Zoom, ask me anything. And Bob Woodward was incredibly patronizing to my friend Shira, who was at the time, I'm not kidding, the COVID-19 reporter for Bloomberg like industry publications, right? That's yeah. all she was doing out of yeah. Washington, D.C. And then so finally, when it was my turn to talk, basically the quickest summary I can say is, I called out the fact that he was his tone was incredibly patronizing and that Which he had revealed in speaking to Shira that he had not consulted any health experts or professionals for his decision not to release this information earlier. And what I did was I he repeatedly asked me to apologize and said that if I did, then I he would send me a copy of his book. And I had to reiterate that I had also covered COVID-19 since January, that I was an economics reporter. And so I wasn't just like that I was a person who understood like data and the impact of the pandemic on American society. I said, if anyone else had not consulted someone from the, I asked at the end, I asked a yes or no question that he did not consult someone from the National Institute of Health, from the CDC, an infectious disease specialist. Oh, also important to mention, he could not make the connection between, he kept insisting that it was something happening in China. And I had to remind him that there were Americans living in China, that Americans traveled to China, that what happens in China affects not just Chinese people. He basically defended the fact that he only consulted his publisher, his editor, his wife, and his assistants on his decision not to release this information earlier. And to your point, how I did it was I had watched previous interviews with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Senator Elizabeth Warren, as well as Katie, oh no, this is gonna, the one with the whiteboard, like her last name, is it Katie Price? No, she is a law professor too. I think she, she had graduated from Harvard Law. It's basically the member of the American female politician who just like destroys, she's on the financial committee. She destroys business executives repeatedly by researching the heck out of all of her questions and then showing on a whiteboard how full of crap they are. And Mm. so at the end, I was like, fine, you can keep dismissing me. You can keep doing this. Yes or no. Did you do this? And then I uploaded the clip and it went like viral within journalist Twitter. And but then right after me, there was a guy who like tried to suck up to him and be like, oh my God, I'm talking to Bob Woodward. And I was like, I don't care. And people yeah. afterwards, like people, like the several editors at Quartz tweeted their support of me. And I was just like, people told me it was, they had to hold an emergency board meeting <laughs> to, to discuss what happened. Yeah, there are notes online at, at IRE wow. talking about what happened and how... Bob Woodward's response did not adhere to the code of conduct. Yeah, but like the thing that struck me was people were like, how did you do that? And you could hear my voice get stronger as the clip is going on. But the thing that was interesting was because I'm from Toronto, like he is not 
a journalism god in my head, the way that mm. people who grow up in the U.S. and watch all the President's Men in class. Yeah. Like, Watergate to me is interesting, but is not... Sure. Like, to me, like, m- my Canadian journalism gods are people like Anna Maria Tremonti, who, like, literally mm. did a podcast series about... that looked into her own experience with domestic violence. Mm. And talked about how it impacted her career and why she felt like the need to disclose like all this all these conversations regarding bias and me too and objectivity when something this horrific had personally happened to her and goes into like very vulnerable explicit detail about the level of domestic abuse that she had gone through very early on in her marriage and so those are the people that I look up to as a person from Toronto and so when this happened I was just like and then like people started tweeting about it again they're like (laughs) then people started texting me and they're like I cannot believe you did that like you like I have wanted to do something like that to somebody else who was like patronizing or dismissive to me and I had no way to to fight back or argue with them in a way that was to explain how disrespectful their behavior was and the fact that you did that. And then it wasn't the only time that Bob Woodward has said something like that to another reporter. Yeah. Like there was a very public incident where he did that to Megan Tui and her co-author of She Said. The investigation Jody Cantor. Jody Cantor, who also did that Starbucks investigation into on-demand time scheduling. So, Hmm. and they have won Pulitzer. Sounds like a pattern, yeah. It was demonstrably a pattern that when he had gotten to this level of prestige and that he would continually just hold things for the sake of his book sales. And it was just one of those things where I was like, like Sheer and I were texting the entire time. Oh, by the way, it's also been mentioned in Margaret Sullivan's memoir. <laughs> like they, wow. She wrote that scene <laughs> in the book and I was like, oh, I gotta write I that down. I, yeah, that's wild. Okay. Yeah. So I huh. need to include that in my next immigration application. But it's one of those things yeah. where I was like, people paid attention to it. And I explained to the moderator had overseen several Pulitzer Prize winning investigations at the Wall Street Journal. And I told her afterwards, I was like, this is the kind of interaction that makes me, that deters people from, like me, from ever pursuing investigative journalism, even with my experience with the murder story, even with my background in learning about finance and economics, is these industry leaders who talk down. And I said to her, I was like, this is the kind of interaction that repeatedly shows me, repeatedly deters me from pursuing investigative reporting, Hmm. even though I have this experience of having written about this prominent murder. And like, I I have done, I had literally, my teachers for data reporting were two Pulitzer Prize winners from the Wall Street Journal and like a former IRE training director. So I was like, it's not for lack of skills or qualification or interest. And like, I'm clearly not deterred by like famous people, but it was one of those things where I was like, when it came to my career and it was very funny, like immediately every investigative reporter like started adding me on Twitter and I was like, oh, okay. Hi. (laughs) I hope you're, be prepared for like my goofy jokes. But it was very funny to me that, and I have gone, like this year in May, when I went to the Sabu conference, Robert Barda from the Wall Street Journal was like, hey, I know you from Twitter. And from that thing with Bob Woodward. It, let me say, it was an incredible moment. And I do think the thing about being from Toronto versus the U.S. makes sense. But I 
think it speaks volumes about who you are. That's it for today's episode of Connection Request. Seriously, I really appreciate you listening, and I appreciate all the notes and feedback you've been sending. If you want to send me feedback or ideas or questions, you can do so at connect at shrugcontent.com. That is connect at shrugcontent.com. You can follow the show on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Until next time, be well, and thanks for listening. Shrug content.